Well, that was some fine singing. Thank you, ladies, Lily and company. That was an awesome time of worship as well. Thank you, worship team. Really sensed the presence of God. and uh, Can't be in a better place when God is the focus of our hearts and our minds and being exalted. That's what we do here. That's what we strive to do. Well, it's good to see everybody, and it is all, we're also very blessed by the weather. I agree with Sam. Um, weather uh, affects me. I don't know if it does to you, but a blue sky and a sunny day affects my mood um, and usually puts me in a better mood than I would have been originally. Well, speaking of good moods, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the final chapter, and... Um, you by now know what's going on with this church. The church is in danger of running aground, you might say, because some false teachers, the, the Apostle Paul sarcastically calls them the super apostles, they've come into this church and they are beginning to undermine the message of the gospel and the truth that the Apostle Paul has brought to them. And Whenever false teachers are in a church, then that church is in danger. And so this church is in danger, and the Apostle Paul, through his writings, through his encouragements and exhortations, is trying to win them back to the truth. The false teaching is dangerous, and it's, it reminds me a, a bit of a, of a compass. Um, you know, if your compass is really out of whack, you may not have any idea where you are or where you're going. But even if it's just one degree off, one degree off, it might not hurt you so bad, say, from here to the parking lot. But if you're going on a long journey and your compass is one degree off, you are not going to land anywhere close to where you intended to land. And so false teaching, depend, depending on the level and the degree of it, serves as a danger to any Christian, any believer. The Apostle Paul has been very patient with the Corinthians, you know this, he's been very kind, he's been overly kind, in, in, in my opinion, bending over backwards not to offend them, not to give them any cause to sin, but in this chapter, he comes down with what we might consider tough love, and he begins to hold them responsible. He makes them aware there are false teachers in the midst, and one of the things that the false teachers were doing was not just the, the false teaching, but they were undermining the Apostle Himself, They were undermining his authority and bringing that into question. And so the Apostle Paul basically is holding the Corinthians responsible to see where they were, to take responsibility over their beliefs and their actions, to repent of any sin that was in their midst. So the Apostle Paul, in order to hold them accountable, is exercising what we know of as church authority because if you put yourself in a position to hold anybody accountable to anything you're kind of you're doing that based on a certain standard and you're saying based on this standard that's in place you shouldn't be doing that or based on this standard you should be doing this and so he is holding them accountable based on the standard of God's holy word in order to do this he is invoking or he is reminding them of the authority that God has given him to do this. Not only preach God's word, but he has been given a level of authority to hold people accountable and to enforce that word. God gives 
people. He puts people in positions and places to do what's good and to enforce what is good. Now, we've looked at church authority, and we know that we are in a world, or at least our culture anyway, that uh, resists authority. I gave a whole message on that. We resist authority because of our sin nature. It just comes natural to not want to do what people tell you to do. We see this at very early ages. And if you have kids, you know this principle. They don't always like to be told what to do. But we also are in the midst of a culture that's in rebellion because of its disbelief in God. It doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe that there are any standards. In Sam's prayer, he talked about uh, the, the blessing to have God's truth in a culture that doesn't really believe in truth. I mean, that is so profound to, to say that truth is relative. Um, now, our culture doesn't live according to that belief. They say that there's no truth or it's relative, but they can't live consistent with that. Is there anything such as, that means then I could never tell you there's such a thing as true love. If I don't believe in any absolute truth, then I couldn't tell you there's, that there's such a thing as true love. So I could never tell you that I truly love you because then I would be pointing to a standard. And yet, one of the most watched movies and read books are about romance and love. So, we do not live consistently as a culture with what we say we believe or what we've discovered or what we determine about how life works. When you come to scriptures, you realize that there are spheres of, of dominions, rulers. We sang about in one of our songs. There, there are kings, there are rulers, there are dominions, and they are established ultimately by God. Now, there are bad rulers and bad kings and so forth. But God is over all of them. And when we talk about authority, in any capacity, we're talking about spheres of, say, jurisdiction. God has established the world, designed it in such a way that there are spheres of jurisdiction. And one of the best um, writings on spheres of jurisdiction that I've ever um, read, it was very helpful to me personally in, in developing a Christian worldview, and I think it's been a it remains a blessing to the church, was by a man by the name of Abraham Kuyper, and he was a, uh, a Dutchman. And he was the prime minister of the Netherlands between 1901 and 1905 when John and Janneke were still in diapers over there. He was uh, very influential. He was a reformed theologian. He was a journalist. And so he was the prime minister, and what he did was he applied his scriptural knowledge and he applied his faith. He said, okay, if the Bible's true and the world works the way God says it does, I want to apply this in my job. I want to lead people and rule people according to what the Bible says. And that's exactly what he did. He was a, he was a profound, not just um, theologian, but a profound leader in in. Uh, the social world and politics as well. He taught what has come to be known as sphere sovereignty. And that is that God has established certain realms or spheres where certain people are sovereign over those realms. And the four, there are, there are many, but the four main spheres of sovereignty where, where they are to be governed is first of all ourself, 
We are to govern ourselves. We're to rule over ourselves well. To force what's good. I got, I'm getting like a feedback in this thing that is making me want to rip it out of it now. Um, anyway, so there's spheres. So self, uh, there is the sphere of family, right? That's your, your own little government, your, your marriage and your family. It's your own little establishment. It's your unit, your institution, and you rule over it. You, you govern it. You work, learn ways to work together. And then there's the, um, there's the state. God has established, Paul tells us in Romans, he's established um, people, law and order to enforce what is good. And then there's the church. So in all of these spheres of sovereignty, there are leaders, there are rulers, and God has put them in place to promote and to keep the peace and the harmony in his creation, the created order. And so, you know, the, the, the church has authority under its sphere, but the church doesn't tell you what to, to do at home unless it directly conflicts with the scriptures. So we, we don't, the church doesn't tell you what time to put your kids to bed or what, what you're supposed to eat for breakfast or those kind of things, what your work schedule should be. That's not the sphere of sovereignty that we begin in. The state isn't to tell the church how to spend its tithe money. That's not their sphere of authority. God has given us that. So in all of these spheres, there's different levels of authority and and sovereignty here. Sometimes they conflict. But ideally, if they all work in harmony, then things will be more peaceful and blessed. And that was his approach there. So I think you see the point. There there are spheres, but there are also limits. They aren't to cross each other. Uh, So if, if the... Any sphere of sovereignty, because God is at the top, no matter what it is, if it ever tells you, any authority ever tells you to disobey the laws of God, then you do not have to obey that because God put the spheres of sovereignty into place in order to enforce what's good. Not only there are abuses of power. We live in a fallen world, and that's not a good thing, and we want to try to correct those as much as possible. But spheres properly applied promote kingdom peace and prosperity. So keep that in mind as we venture into our text this morning. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I put down there verses 1 through 4, but you know those by heart now because we've been here for a while. And so I'm just going to read chapter 10. And this is a little different approach this morning because I'm not... This is kind of more of a, a, a springboard of where we're headed, and I'm going to use some other scriptures to apply God's principles in this area. But in chapter 10, in chapter 13, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes this to the Corinthians. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Again, any authority is to enforce good. It's never to be used for evil means. And the Apostle Paul makes that clear. And I'm grateful for this passage in this book. And I'm always struck by the fact that it's not uh, just instructional. So the Apostle isn't saying, look, if 
if false teachers ever come into the church and you ever sin, this is what needs to take place and this is what I'll do. No, this is history. This has already taken place. And because he is dealing with real life things and battles, we get to glean from all these principles. And this is a very rich section of scripture on the church and how it's supposed to operate and how God designed it and ordered it. And so I want to try to glean as much as we can from this. This will be my last sermon on this passage, this section. We'll move on to the next verses. I'm sure you're relieved to hear that. I think we'll conquer two whole verses next time, five and six. So we've been here for a while and By now, you're probably experts on church authority. It says, if I show up a third time, I'm going to hold you uh, accountable. If you don't repent before I get there, God's put me in this position. And it reminds us that there are times in the life of a church where discipline is required. Of course, there are all kinds of levels of accountability. Church discipline on on this level is the most severe. But we all are to hold each other accountable, try to restore each other, try to point out each other's um, good points and bad points to help each other in our pilgrimage. But there are times, even in a church, where things can get out of hand, sin can be so disruptive that it ruins the purity of the church, it threatens it, and also the witness of Christ. And Christ establishes church to be his light in the darkness. And so to monitor that, there are levels of authority and certain steps that we take. In Matthew chapter 18, um, Jesus lays out steps of confronting sin. And he says, first, there's so the different steps. First, you go to that person that has offended you or whom you've offended, and you try to make peace. That's the self-government there sphere. We are responsible for God. I'm responsible before God to get my sin straight, whether you tell me or not, whether I'm confronted or not. God holds me accountable. And so that's the first level. And then if that doesn't work, then you get another person, a friend, and it has to be established with the two or three witnesses and so forth, and the whole idea is for restoration. If the person is still unrepentant, then you bring in the big guns, you might say, the authorities that can actually do something about it, and they are to confront that person with the goal of restoration. If an individual remains unrepentant, refuses to get right with God, and the sin is to such a degree that it does ruin the purity and the witness of a church then they are to be removed. Scripture says that. It's plain and clear. And that's how church authority is exercised. So the, the reason for this message is because there's actually another step, and it's not in this passage, so I'm going to draw from other Scripture. But let's just say a church exercised church discipline. There was a sinner. They were terribly unrepentant and just causing havoc, wreaking havoc in a church. And the the elders come, the leaders come, the body's been informed. Everything's done right, and they are removed. They're asked to leave. So church discipline has been exercised. Then my question is, well, then what? So when the church has done everything within their power that God has given them to do, then what happens? 
Is that it? That's not it. There's more to the power of the authority of the church. There's more to the workings and the happenings of God in cases like this that are not always uh, directly tied to passages that refer to church authority. And that's what I want to look at for the remainder of our time. So we cut them off from the vine, so to speak. We remove them from church, the body life, the vibrancy, the love, the warmth, uh, the opportunity for spiritual growth. Is, is that the only thing that has suffered? What happens beyond the words and the authority of the church? Or to put it another way, what happens in, in, in the sphere, the spiritual sphere? What happens in the spiritual realm? What is God up to? Here's how Paul explains it in his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagan. Okay, so there's a clue. This is bad. For a man has his father's wife. Yep, that's pretty bad. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. That is not good for the fellowship. That kind of behavior is of the degree that that person has to remove, be removed. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present... With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the the purpose of this message is to inform us, to remind us, to to encourage us to, to be uh, to, to understand the level and the degree, the extent that God goes to, to restore a soul. And that just because the church has done its thing and removed him does not mean God has finished his work. He's been removed from the warmth of the fellowship, but he's been placed out into, he or she has been placed out into the world where God is still at work. And according to this passage, Things will take place on the exterior so that the interior can be preserved and saved. So God will do often what it takes. And that might include pain. That might include misery. That might include things not going well with us. A few weeks ago, I excitingly shared an article with you about the vast underground ecosystem. Like there's so, that we're continuing to discover life. And there's so much life, this article says, beneath our feet. There are microorganisms. Things, big things are happening with little microorganisms under our feet. Let me just quote a few things real quick. The earth is far more alive than previously thought. According to deep life studies that reveal a rich ecosystem beneath our feet that is almost twice the size of all the world's ocean, the results suggest 70% of the Earth's bacteria and our 
archaea exist in the substance, um, in the subsurface. In other words, the earth is bustling with life that we didn't even know about. And I love that reality. That's a reality. And I love that description because as a believer, I say yes. And not just subsurface under our feet. The earth is bustling with activity and rich with a rich spiritual ecosystem that's happening. And God's in charge of it. And he's over it. And there are things that are happening. We can't see with our eyes. But they are happening because God is God. He has a will. He has a place. He has a desire. And he is moving all things in that direction. And he works in every individual heart, those that serve him well and those that turn their back on him. So we live in a world of a rich spiritual ecosystem. And so we're reminded constantly in Scripture, and I'm so grateful that God tells us how the world works with things and realms that we can't see with our eyes. We would not know this about life about things going well or things not going well if God did not reveal it to us in his sacred word. How kind he is to let us in on the the secret workings, if you will, of the, the order of the universe and what God is often up to. So God works on people inside the church and God works on people outside the church, but all for the same goal, to bring them closer and closer, that they may find their delight and joy in worshiping Him as the one and only true God. In this case of discipline, it's not the church that's causing the, the hardship. It's God Almighty. If you've been removed, you're no longer under the influence of the leaders or anybody in the church. But you are still under the influence of God. The church is not causing the hardship. The church has put that sinner into God's hands. And you might say that he has changed hands. That's the sermon title, 1st Titus, I'm sorry, 1st Timothy, chapter 1. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So, it's the same principle, that there are things happening in the spiritual realm. And and Paul calls this, in essence, it's a changing of hands. It's a changing of hands. You apparently were in God's hands or God's good favor and now you have been put into, he says, Satan. So you're you're back in the sphere of the world. You're back into this dominion where Satan operates for those that refuse 
We, we heard this morning in Galatians that we reap what we sow. There are consequences to our actions when we do evil instead of what is good. So God can also display his grace by turning a sinner in this way. God in, this, in, in his love puts the person in a position where they may suffer the consequences of their sin to learn the lesson that sin is not rewarding as it promises to be. It's, destruction, it's destructive. And that passage in Galatians talks about the destruction of the flesh. It leads to destruction. And so God will put us in these positions, in these realms, these spheres, whatever, with the hopes that the misery will lead us back to acknowledging him as our rightful Lord and Savior. So as we make daily decisions about the direction, and we do, we make daily decisions about what way am I going to go with this? What am I going to do with this? The things that come across our desk, we want to keep this reality in our minds. It's, this is God's view of how things work. So simply put, when, when the church deals with unrepentant sinners as instructed by Scripture, God is at work in a powerful way. Because part of the authority that, the church, that God has given the church is not just to remove, but also we are handing that person over. And it's, it's a, it's, it's a last-ditch effort, if you will, to turn a heart back to God at the expense of that person's flesh so that soul may be one. Pain speaks. Misery speaks. C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone. I'm trying to get your attention. Hello. This is an emergency situation, you might say. There are things happening that are not good for you, and I want to turn you back. Now, beyond that, as I think about the realms and the handing over, I'm not going to get real specific. I don't know what that looks like. It's God's business and he does it. So I can't tell you, I can't always say that was a consequence of that sin. Sometimes it's obvious. But sometimes it's just like little things in your life when you're in rebellion or you've walked away from God. I know from experience, unfortunately, there's just like things just are not, are not working the way they should. And it's not like you can always put your finger on it. But it's God at work. You, you just know the big truth is God is at work and he is, you've changed hands. It's for your good. But you don't always get to point things out. And we, Sometimes we do this as believers. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. They, they should have known better. That's a direct consequence of such and such. Well, maybe, maybe not. But it's happening so I don't know what suffering is a result of all the time. Because scripture teaches us that, well, wait a minute, there are strong believers that suffer terribly and experience misery like Job. This guy was top notch. Now his friends tried to say, look, you are in sin. It's a consequences. It's cause and effect. You reap what you sow. That's what God teaches. And here's, you're reaping what you're sowing. He's saying, oh, wait a minute. No, no. So well-meaning friends tried to make an application there that was not correct. 
So you can have the strongest of believers living a life of suffering. It doesn't mean they're sin. You can also have people that are suffering simply as Jesus taught, I think, in the Gospel of John with the person that was born blind. What sin did he commit? Not a single one leads to this. This is just for the glory of God. So, see, God gives himself permission to just act. It's always good. It's always pure and holy. But he just does what he's going to do to bring glory to himself. That's why I'm, not, I'm careful about not pointing to specific things and, and connections. But we just have to know in the big picture that when we walk away or we've been removed, that God is at work just as he was with us in the church, but in a, in a different way. And in a more painful way, you might say. It's going to hurt. Hopefully enough, like the prodigal, to bring us to our senses. And I like the analogy of the prodigal because what did he have? If you were to, and the scripture doesn't do this, but if you were to use it as a metaphor for being in the church and out of the church, he's at home with dad. He's well off. He's got his own room, whatever. He's got his house. He's got a warm bed. He's got meals. He's got a job. He's got things to do that are meaningful. He's got relationships that bring him joy. He has it. He has a good life. He decides he wasn't removed and kicked out. He decides to leave and just remove himself. We do that too, right? Sometimes we're not kicked out of church. We just decide, I've had enough. I think I'm going to live worldly for a while. And then the prodigal experienced hardship after hardship. His money ran off and he, he's, he's eating pig slop, sleeping in the cold, no bed, no, no soft, warm place. And he realized, what have I done? He came to his senses. Man, I got all these good things at home. And I left it. It's the same principle here. There's, there's goodness. There's goodness in the church of God. There are good things happening to God's people when they come together as God instructs us to do and when we fellowship and when we do life when we exalt God together as we are doing this morning. God's at work. We don't always know how it's going to turn out. I think about Acts with Ananias and Sapphira. They lied not just to Peter about their generous tithing. They lied to God. God, his decision... He has the freedom, decides, okay, that's it for them. He takes them out of the world. God can take Christians that have fallen in sin and that, that are just wreaking havoc. He can take them out. Okay, you've, you've done enough damage to the church. You're out of here. I'm taking you up. Again, I'm not making these calls and I'm not pointing out I'm not telling you what God did or is going to do, but he does this thing and there, he does these and, and there are scriptural examples. Time's up. So even as true believers, they can be taken up. So the Corinthian church struggled with, with sin in all kinds of forms, in, in all levels. And, you know, they're not exactly the poster, poster church for Christianity, for spiritual health and so forth. Let me read another passage for you. 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore, and you've heard this one quite frequently actually. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord 
in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. I'm in verse 27. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There's the examine yourself. That's your self-government sphere right there. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now look at this in verse 30. That's why many of you are weak and ill. And some have died. But if you were judged, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's right there too. The, the, all the, the ingredients are in there. You have the self-government. You have the standard, being held accountable to that standard. And then you have the discipline, which is for the purpose of winning you back. So you are not destroyed eternally, but that you will live eternally in the presence of God. You will live out your life doing the very thing that you were created to do. Now this is crazy, isn't it? He, he pulls us out. Well, that's why you guys are, you know, not doing well physically as well as spiritually. Sin is being judged. There's this, this sphere of life in the rich ecosystem. It's spiritual and it is at work in you and it's in the form of your sickness. I don't know. It doesn't tell us how they were sick. What did they get? I don't know. But who wants to be sick? Sick is sick, right? It's not good. And some of them are dying because they're not governing themselves. They are maybe mocking, disrespecting, rebelling against God. And Paul says, some of you are dying from that reason. Can you imagine talking to a church in that way? Could you imagine if I stood up here and said, yeah, you know why some of you are sick? Mm-hmm. I'm not that gutsy. But this is a reality. I don't know how they... Did, did church members rally around the other sick church members and pray for healing? Heal this person. They're, they're suffering God. And yet, it was God that was causing the suffering to save the soul? Does that happen in church life? Maybe. I heard a probably. So he, look at the implications here. Look, your life might be cut short because you're not governing yourself and worshiping God the way you were designed to. And it's to the degree. See, God will protect his church. God loves his church. The church is his bride. What do you do for your bride? What lengths do you go to? There's true love that God has for his church. It's real. And it might mean the death of a sinner, and it might mean the death of a saint. And that's why I think also in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm sure you guys remember this. The apostle gives a, a strong exhortation to the church in the other direction. When he says, if anyone is caused pain, he's caused 
it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So discipline has been implemented. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So when you, you confront somebody on any level, Matthew 18, and they turn from their sin, then you embrace them. You're back in the fellowship. You're, there's warmth. You get the warmth back again. Don't hold it over their heads. That could do even more damage to their hearts and souls. That judgment in your heart. See, look, look how the pendulum swings now for the church to be warm and loving towards those that repent. doesn't mean that all the consequences have been erased from the sin. But it means that we're recognizing the spiritual principles in the spheres that God has put in place. And that is, when we repent, there is a place for you in the kingdom of God. There's a place for you. I like what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, 13 through 15. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. There's that removal. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So those that say we, we may cut off for whatever reason or rebuke, they're not our enemy. You, you're doing this. They're still our brother in Christ if they are indeed a believer. So the, the, the church blanket of, of love and warmth and, and operating according to God's ways are all still in place. There's always grace. Always grace in the Bible on, on every page. So I want to close with this, this idea. If I think Scripture's just given us bad vibes, for lack of better terms. When you fail to repent and things get out of hand and you reach these kind of levels, you're changing hands and you're back in the cold world and there is no warm bed and there is no warm fire. Because you've cut yourself off from that. You've, that's your decision. So now live in it. You want your sin, now live in it. And the implication is things just will not go well with you. Again, I'm not going to get specific. I don't know what that means. It's different for every individual. But things will just not go well with you because God wants you back. So the other implication that I see here is, okay, if, it's, if that's such a terrible thing to be removed from the fellowship of the church and your brothers and sisters then what a wonderful thing it must be to be in good standing and right standing with God in the church. So if this is true and that's terrible, then how good is it to dwell in the presence of God with the family of God and the people of God as we were intended to? So just as there are things that are happening in the rich spiritual sphere of those outside the church, can you imagine what's happening when the people of God come together and meet? And they're in good standing. What kind of spiritual blessings? And we can't point them all out, but th good things are happening, right? If bad things are happening out here, then the idea is, well, the warmth is taking place. The growth is taking place. And guess what? We can't always see it. We can't put our finger on it. 
in either sphere, in, in the church or out of the church. Sometimes we can, and sometimes we can't. But out here, you just know it's bad. In here, you know it's good. So it reminds me of uh, uh, my dear wife. So it's too complex. But anyway, my dear wife is doing a, a deep dive into nutrition. Okay? Somebody say, uh-oh. Yeah, I've lost weight. You probably noticed it. Deep uh, She's doing a deep dive in nutrition. So she's really, she's bouncing things off me all the time, learning stuff new all the time. And she's talking about this, and, and this helps with that, and the inflammation, and this root, and this powder taken from, from this tree and some other nation, and and, and, and you squeeze these seeds and you get this oil and it helps with this and there's no inflammation stuff. And so she's telling me all these things. And, I'm, and so I'm thinking, this sounds great. So if I take it, when will it work? Like, when do I turn into Superman? When do all these things happen? Like, read, read, and she'll be reading and she'll be reading it. Well, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that specifically, like... You take, after five pills, this happens. Or after five weeks, because it's too complex. It's too complex. You, you have different people on with, with different levels of health, different eating habits, exercising habits, and you have different portions of the vitamins or the supplements or whatever it is, the roots and the, the oils and, and so forth. Um, the powders. So it's just too complex and they won't, they won't tell you exactly you are guaranteed this result. But I learned in our conversations after demanding specific results, how much do I have to take before I see results? Sometimes you just have to know it's good for you. And it's proven good for you. So that's where we get to oatmeal. It's objectively good for you. You know, I could have used other things, but oatmeal, it's objectively good for you. Proven. Scientifically proven. So here's what it does. I googled it. Lowers blood sugar levels. Provides antioxidants you know, to fight the oxidants. Promotes healthy bacteria in your gut. Helps you to feel full to manage your weight. Eases constipation. Relieves skin itching and irritation. Lowers your chance of colon cancer. Now, oatmeal's been around a long time, longer than science, literally, I think. Yes, longer than science. So, just want to make sure. So, look, these things have been tested and tested and tested with groups and so forth, and how much did you eat, and, and these are the results. So, the, these are really not debatable. But you're not going to know all this is going on because you ate a, bowl of meat, uh, ate a bowl of oatmeal in the morning. Or because you ate bowls of oatmeal for a month straight, or three months straight, or ten years straight. 
it, it provides antioxidants. So oatmeal is fighting against the oxidants that might do harm to your body. But are you going to feel that? Like, oh, wow, man. <laughs> feel better already. Whew. Those oxidants, whew, out of here. Now, you might, you might get an immediate um, result from Ease's constipation. Now, hopefully you have enough warning to make it, you know. But your gut's getting healthier. You got healthy bacteria in your gut. It's complex, right? You're not going to sit there and, oh, man, it, my blood sugar, my levels. I feel them going down. I feel so much better. It's, it's just there are things you just have to know. That's the point. You see? You just know. It's proven. It's objective. You just know good things are happening, but you may never actually feel it. You, hopefully, you will see it maybe in the lab results. Oh, your cholesterol is down. You didn't feel your cholesterol was down. Oh, it's down. That's, well, that's great. I'll take it. When we're in good standing with God in the church, we are receiving benefits as God's covenant people. You are not my people. Now you are my people. And when you are my people, good things happen to you. And when we come to church in obedience and in faith, and we give and give ourselves to God, trusting him and his loving hands, good things are happening to us. We may never know it until the lab results in heaven. We may never feel it. Until God shows us. You remember that time? You remember that sermon? You remember when you did this? It's all going to come together in God's rich ecosystem. Good things are happening in church. I want to just close with a personal testimony with my remaining few minutes here. I know I've really I should stop. That's why I said that. That was sarcastic. It's okay to be sarcastic. I learned that in 2 Corinthians. Uh, It's a a personal testimony, and you can't prove it. It's subjective. It's how I think things happen, okay? So you just have to take it for what it is. But I was raised in a a, a devout Catholic family, and that meant my my dad and mom, they took their faith very seriously. Uh, they, They took God very seriously. They took the church very seriously. So that pretty much meant that I was, all the kids, you're going to church unless you got something that's contagious that would put other people in harm or you're bleeding too much to go to church. It was like you, you just didn't miss church. That was the way our, our household was run. So, um, you know, as a kid, I took church as kids take church. It's, you get a little bit out of it, but mostly it's about friends and playing with people and getting to see people that you don't usually get to see and things like that. It's not always for the right reasons, but there are some good things in there that take place. But by the time I was about 14, 15, and I don't remember the exact age, I didn't have my license, so I think it was around then. You know, I'd gotten pretty worldly. I was way more interested in worldly things than things of God. You know, they were kind of shelved. So I got to this point where in my life I did some assessing and I thought to myself, you know what? Church is like really in, in the way of my social life. Church is in the way of the direction that I want my life to go. I want to spend the night at friends' houses and do fun things, but I got to get up and go to church because that's a household rule. 
So I'm missing out on all the things that I think will make my life so great. So I went to my dad and I just laid it out on the table. And I said, Dad, I know church is important to you, but I am not getting anything out of it anymore. And I don't think I should have to go. Now, I just knew he was shooting that down quick. I just knew he was, like I was almost getting ready to turn around and leave because I knew I would never get away with it. And he said, son, I'm very sorry to hear that. I'm sorry that you, you feel that way. And that concerns me. But if, if that's where you really are, then no, you, you don't have to go. I hope you will. But then you know you don't have to go. Well, that meant to me, I'm free. That's the way I took it. My dad said that. So I quit going to church. Flat out. Didn't go anymore. Maybe Christmas or something like that. Some, some important family thing. But if it, if it got in the way of my social life, parties or spending the night with friends or whatever, I wasn't missing out on fun worldly things. I was going to miss out on church. I thought it was a huge victory for me. I was released from my father's authority in that way. So here I am in my 50s, and I'm studying this book, and I have to think about church a lot because that's my job. And I look back at that point, and I'm thinking about the spheres in, in this message. And I, think, and I look back, and something shifted in my life when I made that decision. It's subjective. You can't prove it. But something shifted. Because just, even though I thought, I'm not getting anything out of it, I was. God was in the rich ecosystem. God was doing things. It, the, 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 the hymns, the songs, they were affecting my heart. They were bringing warmth and hope to my heart. I didn't know it. The, the sermons that I thought I was just ignoring, yeah, whatever, they were having an impact on me. And then I just took myself right out of that. My life took a different direction, took a harsh, different direction. And it took a lot of pain, spiritual pain, to bring me back or officially in to the kingdom of God. Take it for what it's worth. But when you read God's word and you hear how God sees things and how God works and how much he loves us, Don't be surprised when you are blessed beyond measure or when your life is absolutely miserable because they both have the same end. God wants you to take great delight in worshiping Him and Him alone. May God bless the preaching of His Word.